After Jesus' death, um, some of his followers were leaving Jerusalem and they were incredibly discouraged, very disheartened with their heads hanging low, just, just concerned that all that they had hoped for in Christ was um, destroyed. At his cross, at the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, their hopes were shattered. So Jesus himself, the resurrected Lord, sort of uh, sneaks in beside them as they're walking on the road to Emmaus, walks up to them, listens in on the conversation and kind of interrupts by saying, hey, what's uh, what's going on? You know, why are you guys so disappointed? And and they turn to him. They're like, are you the only man in Israel who doesn't know what's been going on? Now, Jesus could have said, actually, I'm the only one in Israel who does know what's going on. Right. He could have said that, but he didn't. He said, why don't you tell me about it? And they began to tell his story. And by the end of it, Jesus interrupted and began to teach them. And the Bible says specifically in Luke 24, verse 27, it says that beginning with Moses, beginning with Moses, Jesus taught them all things concerning himself. So beginning with Moses. So we're going to pick up where I believe Jesus might have been teaching those guys Today, I wonder if you're thinking, what does Moses have to say about Jesus? I mean, Moses wrote the five first first five books of the Bible and the name Jesus is not in there anywhere. So how does Moses teach us about Jesus? And what we've seen throughout this whole series is that through the pages of the Bible on every page, God is revealing himself. He's telling us who he is and how he intends to save us. And today, we're going to continue that journey in the book of Exodus with the story of Moses. We're going to be on Moses for a few weeks at least. But Moses is the deliverer that God raises up. And uh, the story of God's people coming out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, that's Moses' story. It's, It's not only historical, like factual events, but it forecasts a greater deliverance and a greater Deliverer. So as as you're turning, hopefully you found your spot in the book of Exodus. Let me just uh, as quickly as I can get you caught up. We've just done the book of Genesis. And what we've seen in Genesis is uh, four great events and four great people. So if you're filling in the blanks, here they are. The four big events we see in Genesis 1 through 11. Here they are. Creation. It's a pretty big event, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation. And then the fall into sin. So creation and then fall. Adam and Eve fell. They, they disobeyed God and that's called the fall. And then Genesis 6. Um, all of man at this point. God looks down over his creation and he sees that the, every thought of every man is evil all the time. And in Genesis 6 there's the great flood. So the flood is, is the third big event And then one we didn't really spend a lot of time on in Genesis 11, 10 and 11, is the tower. And essentially, after the flood, Noah and his family had repopulated the earth and um, the people decided they're going to build their own way to God. So they begin building this huge tower called the Tower of Babel. And at that point, the Lord comes down to them and uh, scatters them across the planet and confuses their languages. And we have peoples now. In Genesis 11. Well, then in Genesis 12, God shifts gears away from just big events. The storyline shifts from events and into people. 
And so we're introduced to a man named Abram, who we later find out is Abraham. God chooses Abraham and is going to build a nation out of him, out of his family. Uh, Abraham has a son, finally. His name is Isaac, and Isaac is spared uh, on the sacrificial altar. And then Isaac has Jacob, so the third person is Jacob. And then we just finished um, Joseph. 13 chapters on Joseph last week. So now, how does all of those things, how do all those things point us to Christ? We just walked through a few of those, but I'd like to just mention a few more. God created a beautiful world with man and woman as the pinnacle of his creation. He made us in his image, giving us dominion and blessing. But man disobeyed God and everything fell under the curse of sin. As God gave his curse to the serpent, he mentions a promised redeemer who's coming, right? Genesis 3.15 is the very first gospel promise. And it says that the seed of the woman is going to have enmity with the seed of the serpent. And that, that son, that seed of the woman, of Eve's child, eventually is going to, although bruised by the serpent, is going to crush his head. Well, then God brings a sweeping judgment on the earth through the flood. But in the midst of judgment, he shows mercy by building an ark. Noah builds an ark and Noah, his family, and a remnant of the animals are saved through the ark. We see when Noah gets off the ark that the shame of man's sin is still a problem, that the sin problem wasn't out there. It's actually in here. Right. And uh, like we said, then the people decide to make their own way to God and build uh, a tower to the heavens. We could talk again through the people, but what we remember is that we've seen all along the way that this is pointing to Jesus as the ultimate rescuer for sinners. Jesus is the word of power by whom all things are created. John 1, Colossians 1. In in the fall of sin, Jesus is that seed. He's the son of Adam who will crush the head of the serpent. In the great flood, Jesus is the true and better Noah, the one who is going to save his family, his people. He's also the ark through whom anyone can be saved, but only in Christ. Jesus is the true tower. He's the only true way to get to God. But all men from all nations can come to God. We see the inverse of the Tower of Babel at Pentecost. When the Spirit comes down and all the peoples and languages are brought into harmony again. This is the work of the gospel. Our God, Jesus, he is the God who makes a one way covenant of grace with Abraham. He is the true and better Isaac, the the promised son that actually did lay down his life and actually did die as a substitution for all of us. Jesus is the one who wrestled with Jacob. And he is the better Jacob who didn't have to cheat and steal the birthright and blessing of his father. No, he already had the birthright and blessing of his father, and he willingly gives it to all who believe. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. He's the beloved son of the father, the hated by his brothers, 
who suffered in order to save the very ones who sent him to die. This is the story of Christ. And what we're seeing as we read through the scriptures is that this book, this book is about Christ on every page. So what do you think we're going to discover when we open our Bibles to the book of Exodus? It's about who? Jesus. Okay, good. You you guys caught on, right? So the word Exodus means this. It means the way out. The way out. And this book is telling the vivid story of God leading his people out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. And it's the utter defeat of their enemy. And then God calling a people to himself, making this nation a a people who are defined by his character. He does that by giving them his law. One thing we notice about the book of Exodus is that the word redemption And the word salvation are both used for the very first time in the Bible in this book. There's no mistaking that the broader picture of the Exodus is telling us a greater story, not just the escape from Egypt. But it's kind of like a a Bob Ross painting, if you will, of the deliverance, the redemption, the salvation of sinners. So as we walk through this historical account and we look at the story of Exodus, we must read it in light of the gospel of salvation in Jesus. The story, like we've said, of God's deliverance in Exodus. Guess how it begins? With the birth of a baby boy. Faithful courage of some midwives and Moses's mother. The threat of murderous evil and the sovereign hand of God. That's how the story begins. And if you've never read the book of Exodus, you should pick it up. Just start chapter one and go chapter two, chapter three, chapter and just read like big chunks of this book. It's beautiful. It's a great story and it will lift your praise to God who is sovereign over all. But can you think of another story of redemption, of salvation? Of deliverance that begins with the birth of a baby boy, miraculous birth of a baby boy under the tyrannical evil edict of a murderous king and the sovereign hand of God to preserve the life of that baby. Can you think of another story like that? Yeah, of course, it points us to Jesus. And as we've discovered all through the scriptures, Moses, although a historical character, is meant to point us to a greater redeemer, a greater deliverer. He is uh, Christ, the true and better Moses. So who was Moses? Well, he was raised up as a mediator. We'll talk more about him as we go, obviously, but a mediator between God and his people. Um, God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and gave himself a name, Yahweh. Can y'all say that? Yahweh. Yeah. Yahweh. So in Hebrew, there's no vowels. It's just four letters. Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. And that name means I am who I am. Amazing. When you read in the New Testament and Jesus talks about Abraham and he says before Abraham was, what did he say? I am. Yeah. So what was Jesus referencing? He's calling himself The God of the burning bush. It's powerful stuff. 
Well, Moses became the prophet who spoke the words of God to the people and demanded deliverance from Pharaoh. Um, Does anybody remember the phrase that Moses said to Pharaoh? He stood before Pharaoh and he said, let what he said. Let my people go. Well, in light of Mother's Day, I wanted to share with you a little video, a story. Uh, about 10 years ago, I had my first daughter. We were reading Bible stories together. This was one of her favorites. And we had read through and we're sitting there rocking together. And I was like, Moses stood in front of Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. I was like, Riley, what did he say? And uh, she said, let my people go. And I thought, this is a good video. So I pulled out my little camera. And I shot this video. Uh, what did God say to Pharaoh? You give us tickets. <laughs> <laughs> what did God say to Pharaoh? Say it. Uh, I don't know where that you get my chicken came from. That's not that's not what Moses said to Pharaoh. Uh, Moses actually performed some incredible signs and miracles, right? Um, incredible things. When he stood before God, he said, how, how are the people going to believe me? Why, why would Pharaoh believe me? And the Lord said, you see that staff in your hand? Throw it down. He threw it down. It turned into a snake. And then the Lord said, pick it up. Moses was like, uh. He said, pick it up. So he picked it up and turned right back into his staff. Moses said, take your hand and put it in your, in your coat. And he put his hand in his coat. He said, now pull it out. And he pulled it out and it was leprous, covered in leprosy. And the Lord said, put it back in. He put it back in. He pulled it out. It was perfectly well. And the Lord was demonstrating repeatedly to Moses, you watch what I'll do. You just obey me. You watch what I'll do. And that was the trend. You know, the, Moses went to uh, Pharaoh and he stood before him and God would work miraculous signs. Through the book of Exodus, you you read about the 10 plagues. There were 10 plagues that God sent to prove his power. He says, I'm powerful. I'm more powerful than any God you have or could ever worship. You trust me. You obey me. And God demonstrated his power before Pharaoh. And ultimately, Moses was the man that God used to redeem and deliver God's people from Egypt. And we want to read today the climax of that story. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you're in the book of Exodus. I want you to turn to chapter 14 and we're going to read the the account of the Red Sea crossing. So would you stand with me? Exodus 14 and let's read together. Pick it up in verse five. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this thing we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihaharath in front of Baal Zephon. 
When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire of cloud and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon the horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered their chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let's pray. Lord, you are Lord over all. Help us today as we read this 
scripture, this story, as we look at this powerful display of your conquering our enemies. Lord, remind us that this is a picture of the victory that you've won for us over sin, death, hell, and the grave. That this is a real live history that foreshadows a greater deliverance. And Lord, help us to take hope in the power of our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want us to think through three questions today as we walk through this text. As we know, this is pointing us to the salvation that Jesus accomplishes. Moses represents Christ and we, his delivered people. So the question then, a few questions I want us to ask are, one, what do you need to be delivered from? What do you need to be delivered from? This scripture helps us answer the question, okay? The Lord allowed his people to be in bondage to slavery for a reason. I don't know if you realize or not, but uh, the Lord promised with his covenant to Abraham, he promised them in that covenant. It's kind of strange when you read it in Genesis 15, but there it is built in right into the covenant. He says there's coming a day where you're going to be you people are going to be enslaved for 400 years. In a foreign land, but then I will come and rescue you. And the Lord prophesied that he told him that it was going to happen and of course it did here in Egypt why why 400 years of slavery maybe a parallel to that would be do you know how many years it was of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament 400 would there be a coincidence there or would it be the design of God that the Lord would bring ultimate salvation and ultimate deliverance after a similar time period. And the thing is this, that our, our problem, our need for deliverance isn't just that we sin. It's that we are slaves to sin. In bondage to sin. So to answer the question succinctly, our, our need for deliverance is that we are enslaved. We are in bondage to sin before Christ. So as we read through the story, one thing we see is that we do not have a passive enemy. Do you notice that about Pharaoh and about the Egyptian army? We do not have a passive enemy. So if your image in your mind of sin in your life only looks like shackles, that limit your activity. While that's true, and it's maybe a good image, it's not necessarily accurate, even for what we've seen so far through the scriptures. The very first introduction to temptation and sin comes through the, the cunning and craftiness and deceit of a serpent, right? An active enemy who comes to Adam, who comes to Eve, who speaks who deceives, he's active, he's not passive. We get to Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, and the Lord himself 
When he sees Cain is so disheartened about how God accepted Abel's sacrifice but didn't accept Cain's, the Lord himself comes to Cain and he says, Cain, beware for sin is, does anybody remember the phrase? Crouching at the door. Crouching at the door. The imagery there is like of a lion that's ready to pounce, right? Well, Peter picks up on that imagery in the, later when he's writing and he says, um, beware for we have an enemy who is prowling around, right? Like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And what we learn all through the scriptures, especially as we come to the Exodus, is that our enemy, sin and slavery to sin, is not a passive enemy. Pharaoh here in this text, he's chasing. He, you know, he, he reluctantly released the people of Israel after 10 plagues and especially after his son died in the 10th plague. Then he lets them go. Well, immediately after watching all of that, uh, all of that army of people leave in the Exodus, he immediately begins to think through the economic impact on Egypt. These people have built our They've built everything. And they're all leaving us. And we can't let this happen. Ready my horses. We've got to chase them down. We've got to bring them back. This is his objective is now to go get immediately. Go get those that have been liberated. How like our enemy is that? Pharaoh's heart is hardened. If you read just the, the, the passage in Exodus 14 and you just look at the action verbs of Pharaoh, they're very aggressive it says that uh, he made ready, he pursued, he pursued, he overtook, he drew near, he chased after. I mean, these are very aggressive verbs of the enemy. And then we notice um, we must acknowledge that our problem is not just that we have sinned or that we are sinners but rather that we are slaves to sin. As you read through Paul's writing in Romans, in chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, he's hitting this idea constantly about slavery to sin. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can look there, but you don't have to. In Romans 6, Paul says, in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present your bodies to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's Romans six. In Romans seven, Paul's going to talk about what it's like to be a slave. He's going to talk about. How it is, how we operate, how we live as slaves to sin. And he's going to say specifically um, in chapter 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known that it, what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And he goes on down in verse 15. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, then I agree with the law that that is good. He goes on talking about this, this idea of being in bondage. Even in his own self, there's a conflict within himself of slavery. Like, I can't do what I want to do. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. I'm enslaved, is what he's saying. By the end of chapter 7, though, Paul gives us great hope in the gospel of Jesus. He cries out. He says, wretched man that I am, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And then chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Paul goes on to say, for the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so all through there's this imagery of slavery and bondage to sin and then deliverance and freedom in Christ. And Christ here is painted. He's he's the portrait of our great deliverer. So I need to say this to us. You are not a good person who sometimes sins. Apart from real faith in Christ, apart from being born again, you are a slave to sin. The imagery that was coming to my mind as I was writing this sermon was the the Truman Show. Do you guys know the movie, the Truman Show, Jim Carrey movie? And he lives his whole life in this like bubble and he thinks everything's normal. But no, he's just a puppet on the strings of someone else in, in control. And I got to thinking, maybe that's a little bit what it's like to live as a slave of sin. You think you're free, right? But you're not. This is the deceptive nature of our enemy is to to let you think, well, if you come to Christ, it means all these rules. Right now, you're totally free. And that's the enemy. You're totally free to do whatever I want. And the opposite is actually true. When you come to Christ, you're actually set free by the glory of Jesus. So apart from being born again in Christ, you are a slave to sin. This is what we need to be delivered from. As sinners, we're trapped. We need to be rescued. Number two, second question. What is the way out? If that word exodus, that's what that means. The way out. What is the way out? And I think from the text, we would have to say it is it is to cross over, right, to to cross over from death to life, from slavery to freedom. How do I do that? Well, by grace, through faith, we'll get into that straight from the text. Let me say it again. Here's here's what you need. Your way out is the same for all of us. It is to cross over, you know, the Red Sea imagery there from death to life. And how do you do that? By grace through faith. So the the Red Sea imagery is just unmistakable, unmistakable. On this side of the water, I'm a slave. I'm dead in my sin. But on this side of the water, I'm free. I'm alive in Christ. And so the huge question then is how do we get from here to here? How do we go from slavery to freedom? And Exodus in chapter 14 gives us a beautiful picture of that. The first reality is that you cannot save yourself. 
Right? The, the idea of a deliverance being delivered, that word means you're, you're passive, you're the recipient, right? Or the idea of being redeemed is the same. You need a redeemer. You are redeemed because there is a redeemer. Or being saved, right? If you've been saved, it's because there's a savior. Does that make sense? You're the recipient of the powerful benevolence of someone else. You cannot save yourself. And God worked it in in Israel's history right here in this moment to walk them to a place. They literally walk between two mountain ranges in this little valley called a wadi. And they get to the end of the valley and there's a beach there and there's nothing but water. And they're like, well, great, Moses. This is going well, right? And then they turn around and they look and guess who's behind them? Pharaoh and his army are marching down into the valley, coming at them full steam ahead. And sure enough, they're looking on the left side, there's a mountain. Right side, mountain. Front side, water. Back side, army. They're absolutely trapped. Why would God allow his people to be trapped? Because he's telling us we need deliverance and we cannot save ourselves. I want you to consider... What they've been saying all along in Exodus chapter two, verse 23 and 24, the Bible says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. And God saw the people of Israel. And I love the way that verse ends. It just says, and God knew. God knew. And in my mind, I'm thinking, God knew what? What did, what did God know? God, what did he know? What did he know? Well, in chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, the Bible says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to do what? To deliver them. And then in verse 10, God says to Moses, come, I will send to Pharaoh. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. In chapter six, verses five through eight. Again, it's a repeated theme. This will be the last one we read. But I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Listen to these words. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Do you see what God is saying? He's walked them through this agony. He's listening to their cries. He's hearing their agony, their struggle. He's with them in it. He knows what's going on. And then he finally comes in and he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And at the end of all the I wills, you will know I am the Lord. The whole point of this is to posture the people in great need. To get them to the place where they realize, I can't do anything about this problem I have. And then when we read in Exodus 14, 
if you will, find your place back there. Because it's made explicitly clear here. How do you get, we're answering this question, how do you get from this side of the Red Sea, or rather on this side of slavery, from death in sin to life in Christ? How do you get there? Well, in Exodus 14, 14, I love these words, maybe even verse 13. Moses said to the people in verse 13, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. I love verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You have only be silent. In other words, you can't do anything to get yourself from here to there. From slavery to freedom, from death to life. You can't do anything. The Lord will fight for you. And so we have to say this. The way out is grace. Grace is you can't earn it, right? You can't make your own way. It has to be a gift of God. It's, it's given to you. The way out is all God's work. You, you can't really even speak on your own behalf. You, you can cry out to God for help. And when you do, he comes in and says, I will, I will, I will. So the floodwaters are a powerful image. I need to move quickly. They re- represent judgment and mercy. They always have, right? Remember the great flood in Noah's day? It was the judgment of God for the wickedness of the earth. And the ark was God's mercy to save, Right? The floodwaters are judgment. The ark is mercy. And the same here. At the Red Sea, the walls of water are pushed back. And the the water of God's wrath against sin is restrained in mercy. It's held back with the mighty hand of God's mercy. And his covenant people are able then to walk safely through from one side to the other. But when the Egyptians try to cross There's a deluge of God's judgment that washes over them in total destruction. Then we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, the commentation, commentary, I guess, on what's happening here. And Hebrews 11, 29 says this, by faith, say that, by by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith. Sounds like the Egyptians are being drowned. Uh, it was a great sound effect. I mean, it's like stereo in here. So we've said that the way out is grace. Now we have to say the way out is through what? Faith. And lo and behold, this is what the New Testament teaches, isn't it? Yeah. Ephesians 2, 1. Therefore you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive. How? That not of yourselves, it is the grace, it is the gift of God. By grace, through faith, are you saved. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So maybe you would say, well, what about their faith? I mean, these people, they must have had some really great faith. And I would imagine maybe some of them did. Some of the Israelites probably walked through those walls of water, you know, and some of those guys are like, oh, my gosh, look at that whale, you know, and they're like, look, it's Yahweh, the power of Yahweh. He's delivering us. Some people probably with that kind of faith. Others maybe are like, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. Right. As they walk through. 
what the New Testament writes about both doesn't talk about the quality of their faith, the greatness or littleness of their faith. And this is where we remember that faith is really more about the object of our faith. In whom do we trust? Not how well do we trust? In whom do we trust? To be rescued, it's by grace, through faith in the rescuer. And thirdly, who can deliver you? This brings us to this point. And in the scripture, we see that it it is God's mediator, God's deliverer. In, In Exodus, it's the Lord by way of Moses. At the very end of chapter 14, I don't know if you noticed it, it says that they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It is the Lord who saves by way of Moses. Why did God choose to use a man? Have you thought about that? Why didn't God himself just blow a wind, separate the water and send them on through from the clouds? Go through the water. Why did he do that? God raised up Moses from a baby, delivered him from a murderous king to become the prince of Egypt, who then tries to save the people on his own, ends up running out to Midian, marries a girl, shepherds her father's flock. 40 years pass. Then the Lord appears to him in a burning bush and says, I'm sending you to go to Pharaoh. Moses is like, but I can't speak well, right? He ends up going. Why all the work and investment in this man? Why? God could have done it all himself. And again, we see the sovereign hand of God to orchestrate history to tell his story. Moses is pointing us to a better rescuer. God chose to use Moses because God was going to choose to use Jesus. And Moses, we see here, is a type of Christ in so many ways. I just want to give you a few. As we've mentioned, baby Moses was hunted by the Pharaoh. Christ was hunted by the king. Moses' first coming, his first coming down into the people to try to rescue them, he was rejected. Christ, when he first came, he visited them. Luke 19 says they didn't know the time of their visitation. Moses mediates between God and his people. We're going to spend a minute here in just a moment. But he's meeting with God face to face and then coming to the people and delivering a message. This is a mediator. Jesus is, 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there is one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. He's the ultimate mediator. Moses was a shepherd for a season. Christ is the good shepherd. As a shepherd, Moses um, ran off the evil shepherds and fed and watered the flock himself. Jesus flipped the tables, ran off the evil religious shepherds and feeds and waters the flock himself. And ultimately, we see that Moses delivered the people from captivity. It was through the outstretched arms of Moses that the waters parted and the people walked through into Canaan, the promised land in the presence of God. And ultimately, when Christ stretched out his arms, right? When Christ stretched out his arms, the veil in the temple was parted and the separation between God and men was removed. And people, we now can walk through Christ, through and into the presence of Almighty God. Jesus is the true and better Moses in all these ways and many more. 
I want us to zero in on the idea of mediator for just a moment. We'll finish here. Moses was one of the people. He relates to them because he's one of them. He was a Hebrew baby. Moses is also the representative for God. He's, God is going to act in power to save his people, but he won't do it apart from Moses. If you notice every command, he says, Moses, lift your hands and then I'll do this. Moses, stretch out your arm. Moses, take your rod, put it here. Moses, do this and then I'll do everything he does works through Moses. So Moses is both, he's the middleman. He's a representative of the people and a, a representative of God. Did you notice that in Exodus 14? The people... When they realize they're trapped, they cry out and complain. They grumble. They say, is it because there are no graves back in Egypt? You brought us out here to die, right? They're they're crying out in complaint. But who got rebuked? Exodus 14, 15. Look at it. God himself rebukes Moses. Why do you cry to me? It's interesting, right? It's because Moses is one of them. He's so closely identified with the people that even though it's their sin and their grumbling, Moses bears their guilt. And then we notice in Exodus 14, 21, the Lord is the one who drives the sea back with a strong east wind. But it's not until Moses stretches out his hand over the seas. And here we see that Moses is so closely identified with God That he is the visible vehicle for God's saving power. Now, how does this work together? Well, we must acknowledge that if Moses is so intimately related to men that he represents them before God, even such that he bears their guilt, and that he is the, the man who represents God downward to the people, that Moses is this man in the middle. He's the mediator. He's one of them, yet was sent to them. He is the one who has come to save them through God's power. Now, the question is, who can deliver you? Who can deliver me? Well, it's not Moses. Moses killed a man. Moses didn't even um, exercise the covenant sign with his own son of circumcision. His wife had to do that for him. But we need one like Moses. A great deliverer like Moses, but better. And Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus Christ came to be one of us. And although sinless, he bears our guilt. And by his death and resurrection, he is the vehicle of the powerful deliverance of God. Church, I want to encourage the believer. And I want to call you, unbeliever, to move from here, from death, from slavery and sin, to life. And the only way to do it is to cry out to the great deliverer and to trust him to move you from here to there, from slavery to freedom in Christ.